you, things that are on your heart. You think about your family, your church family, and things that are on your heart for Crossway. And, and a lot of times when I'm out of the pulpit for a time, I, I start thinking about things I would love to be able to address. And when you're preaching through a book, of course, you're just taking that book and working through it. And it may not be that that book is going to address some of the things on your heart. So coming back from a break like this, it's just very natural for me to want to speak to an issue or two. And we'll take a couple of Sundays here to do that before we go back to the Gospel of John. But my purpose this morning was, and still is, uh, hopefully we would have had the India report, but we'll do it next week, was to, to just stoke the missional fires of Crossway. To stoke them. Your fires burn down. You've got to poke them and you've got to stir them and you've got to put wood on them to keep them burning hot. And that's the way it is with vision for us as well as, as a people, as individuals and as a church. Vision is like fire, you've, like a fire. You've got to keep it stoked or it's going to burn down. We want to stoke this morning the missional fires of Crossway Fellowship. Understand, I mean not missionary, but missional. Missionary in the narrow sense would mean people that are going out and being sent out to some other place with the gospel. What I'm talking about is us, all of us, all of God's people everywhere, not somebody that goes out of here, us here. Missional means being on mission. And every child of God, every group of God's disciples, every gathering or assembly or church is on mission. By definition, we're called on mission. Whether we're actually being obedient to that call is another question, but that is our call. We're missional people by definition. Jesus gave us a mission, a great commission, and we need to be on that mission, and we need to keep those fires burning. We used to sing a song, I can't think, was it 15, 20 years ago? Don't let our love grow cold. I'm calling out, light the fire again. You remember that song, some of you? It's a great song. I used to love singing that because, yeah, sometimes it just really speaks to my heart. You know, y'all, sometimes you feel like you need that. You need that once again every week in some ways. Light the fire again. Don't let our vision die. I'm calling out, light the fire again. And that's just the purpose this morning. Don't let our love grow cold. I don't know that the author meant this, but you think of the letter of Jesus to the Ephesian, the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, they had left or lost their first love. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let our vision die. This morning I want to reflect on Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus calls us to be kingdom first people. So let's go there. If you're not there already, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 33 is the verse. Maybe you know it already. Maybe it's been a memory verse in your life for years. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's Jesus' call to us. That isn't just something to understand theologically. That is def- to be defining what Crossway Fellowship is about. Not just what we are about on paper or in theory, but how we are going about our life and ministry together. What we do, how we shape our priorities. We are called to be kingdom first people. If we're going to be on mission for Jesus together, 
We've got to make sure that our priorities are aligned with his priorities, that our agenda is the same as his agenda. So to start out this morning, just briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. When Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God, what is he talking about? What is it that he is calling us to be seeking I'm going to cut straight to the chase. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the biblical foundation and basis for what I'm going to say here. But the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to in this passage, and really it's what he's referring to throughout the Gospels and what it refers to in the New Testament, and a lot of times what it refers to in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God here is the reign of God over the earth through his Appointed and anointed Messiah, the reign of God on this earth, over the earth, through his human instrument, the Messiah. So what we're talking about here is the messianic kingdom. We're talking about the reign of God over the earth through the Messiah. And of course, that means the reign of Jesus. So he's saying, seek first my reign, not just my reign somewhere in the clouds, not just my reign somewhere in theory, but my reign over the earth. God has appointed and anointed Jesus to rule this earth. And that is to be our first priority, our highest priority. Our number one agenda, seeking it first, pursuing it, getting after it. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' reign is only something in the future when he comes back. Jesus is reigning now. Anywhere, anyone, or anything is under the rule, under the authority of Jesus Christ, now his kingdom has come there. If you are his disciple, by definition, you have renounced yourself, you have taken up your cross, you're following him, you're now under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. The reign of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ are exactly the same thing. Some of you are more accustomed to hearing it in terms of the lordship of Christ. And that, re that resonates more immediately in your heart and mind than talking about him as king. And it has been the habit, and it is the theology of some, to say that the kingdom is entirely future. But Jesus was very clear. The kingdom is here. Repent. John said it first. Repent and be baptized. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus came announcing exactly the same thing. Now, I said I wasn't going to spend a lot of time defending that or unpacking that, so I need to resist doing that. But his reign over the earth has already begun, began when he arrived. And to that home, to that marriage, to that business, to that schoolroom, to that dating relationship, to that finances in a family, to that budget where Jesus is in charge, his kingdom has come. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has, it's right here on the screen. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You were, you were citizens of a kingdom. All of us were citizens of a kingdom at one time, whether we realized it or not. And most people who are citizens of that kingdom don't realize it. 
But he has moved you out of that kingdom into another kingdom. And it is the kingdom of his beloved son. He has. You see that? He has. It's done. It's happened. It's now. And then Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. How does it start? All what? All authority. Where? In heaven and where? On earth has been given to me. And so what are we supposed to do about that? You know, when you begin to understand the Great Commission from a kingdom point of view, you understand what the kingdom of God is, the messianic reign, the reign of Jesus on the earth, and you understand the Great Commission from that standpoint, you understand what he's saying is, look, I'm king over everything, now you go call people to come and submit themselves to my kingship, to my rule. That's what it means to make a disciple. A disciple is somebody who surrenders their life to Jesus. And what does he tell us to do when someone surrenders their life to him and becomes his disciple? We're to baptize them, and then what else? We're to teach them then to obey, keep, observe everything that he's commanded. In other words, we're to teach them to live under his reign, to make his reign the reality of their entire life. You and I are in the process of that, all of us. We're still working in that direction. We're still learning to live under the authority of Jesus. Now, here's what we're really driving at this morning, going to focus our attention on. What does it mean to seek first the reign of Jesus over this earth? What does that mean? We're going to look at it through three uh, points of view. Now, there's other things that could be said, but there are at least three things that it means to seek first Jesus' reign over the earth. Number one, doing our utmost to find and enter it. There's a kingdom here. If we're seeking it first, that starts with understanding I need to be in it. I need to find it. Where is it? Am I in it? I'm always struck by something that Jesus said to one of the, the, the what the New Testament sometimes in our translation calls a lawyer, or he's a law expert, an expert in the, the law of Moses and the rabbinic traditions. This is an Old Testament scholar. Let's think of it that way or a great rabbi learned in all of the ways and traditions of the laws of God and, and uh, of Moses and of, of the rabbis. And he said this to him after a discussion of, well, what is the greatest commandment? And he goes to the great commandment to love God first of all, above all, with all things, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. They have this interaction, and Jesus is impressed with this man because of the way he reflects on, yes, this is right, and here's what Jesus said to him, Mark chapter 12, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. My batteries were brand, oh, okay, I think we're back. My batteries were brand new this morning, so I think we should be. Okay. Um, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Here is a man, I think, who probably assumed that when it showed up, he would be part of it. I'm struck by the fact that Jesus says you're not far, which means also you're not in. Not far, but not in. First question that I would propose to you again, and we do this in different ways, is are you a citizen of this kingdom? 
Have you surrendered yourself to this king? That's a, that's a different matter than just praying a prayer somewhere. Okay? And I think one of the weaknesses in the way that the gospel has been presented for generations here in our country is that we've made it a kind of easy, require-nothing believism. In fact, I've heard millions, well, I shouldn't say millions, <laughs> that was an exaggeration. I've heard many, many people say, you don't have to do anything. They're trying to say, it's not by works. That's true, it's not by works. But you don't have to do anything? Jesus said you have to do something. New Testament says you have to do something. I think somebody in the book of Acts just preached on repentance. And that's not a debate, folks. I'm sorry. Those people who debate whether you have to repent or not to be saved haven't been reading the Bible. Of course you have to repent to be saved. Jesus Is Jesus your king? That's the real question. That's the fundamental question. I came across a very profound comment this week by my favorite preacher of all time, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the first sign of spiritual life is realizing that we are dead. Think about that. When you are spiritually dead, completely, utterly dead, and have no spiritual motion going on in you whatsoever, you don't even know it. (laughs) You don't even care, probably. But in a similar way, the first step toward getting into this kingdom would be to realize you're not in it. It isn't automatic. You don't just get born into it physically. You don't come out of the maternity ward in the kingdom of God. And so the very first measure of seeking it is to do your utmost to find it and enter it, get into it. Seeking it first then would mean that you realize what an urgent priority it is that you enter the kingdom, that you make sure that you are in it. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Let me just note here for a minute. I wasn't planning to do this, but let me make sure. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God in the New Testament are synonymous. They're not different things. Sometimes people will try to say that they refer to different things. Simply read, kingdom of heaven occurs only in the gospel of Matthew. You can compare parallel passages between Matthew and Luke and Matthew and Mark, and you can see that in one passage, in Matthew, Jesus may use the language there, kingdom of heaven. Identical passage in Luke or Mark, he says kingdom of God. Same statement. They mean exactly the same thing. Just wanted to be clear, make sure we're on the same page there. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I want you to try to imagine that you have discovered something that is available for purchase. In other words, you you realize you can actually get it, you can own it, and it is so valuable to to you that you instantly go home and put your house on the market and put your cars up for sale and hold a huge yard sale to sell everything you've got to get the cash together so you can get that thing that you value that much. Try to imagine something that would be that valuable to you. You're going to liquidate everything you've got to get the cash together to buy it. That's what this is. 
That's what the kingdom of God is. That's the urgency of seeking it first. Are you a citizen of this kingdom? Are you under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? That's the question. All right, number two. First, we're doing our utmost to find and enter it. Number two, surrendering our lives completely to it, to the reign of Jesus. Surrendering our lives completely to it. Seeking first the kingdom of God. Seeking to bring every facet of our life under the control, under the lordship, under the reign of Jesus. The question here is not, are you being a good boy or girl? Please don't hear that. I hope, you know, there are times when we can go to a church service and we hear an exhortation and basically we're kind of hearing shape up. It's not the question here. The question is, are you seeking every day to be fully surrendered to Jesus? Is your heart surrendered? Just walk through our lives for a moment. Is your heart surrendered to Jesus? Are your affections his, under his control? What that would mean is you place your affections on the things that Jesus says are valuable and important. And when you realize your affections are beginning to be attached to something that is outside of the reign, outside of the will, outside of the desire of your king, you recognize this is a misplaced affection, and I must deal with this. There is need then for repentance and correction and Holy Spirit work in our hearts to move our affections back in line with Jesus and his desire for us. Our affections can go in all kinds of directions, as you know. But in the day-to-day realities of life, guard your heart. Are your affections under the lordship of Christ, your desires, your values, your motives, your attitudes? Are our bodies under the reign of Jesus Christ? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, do what? Glorify God in some Abstraction, glorify God in your bodies or with your bodies. Now, I'll tell you, here's one that's hard for me too. I'll be honest with you. How about our eating and our drinking? Of course, you know we're going to talk about our eyes and what we're looking at. We're going to talk about our values. I'm sorry, our tongues. (laughs) My eyes tongues, our hands, what we're doing with our bodies, our sexuality. Is our sexuality under the reign of Jesus so that we're obeying him? If you are not married and you are sexually active, you are not under the reign of Jesus. At least in that dimension of your life, you have created some kind of a, some kind of a, a, a category, some kind of a, a, a box where you f- are giving yourself the license or the freedom to live outside of the reign of Jesus. You have not surrendered to his reign in that case. Are our homes, are our marriages, are our families under the reign of Jesus? You can think that one through in many ways. Think about the way you're raising your children. Are you raising your children to be 
kingdom first people, with kingdom priorities? Are you raising them basically to be pursuing the American dream? Are our TVs, our DVD players, our cell phones under the reign of Jesus Christ? Are our professional lives, who we are at work, how we do business, how we treat people who are maybe under our leadership in the workplace or we're someone who's over us and how we're responding to them, someone who's alongside us as a co-worker. Are our credit cards, our checkbooks, our tax returns under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Said this before, I'm going to say it again. It's pretty tough to claim that you are seeking first the kingdom of God if you don't spend any money on it. And that starts with you giving, as you should be giving, to your church. And we don't talk about that very often. If you're a guest today, you go, here they go again, you know. We hardly ever talk about that. But that's the reality that we have to face. Yeah, I love Jesus, and he's number one in my life. And seek ye first the kingdom of God, and I sing the song. And it's all, we, we, we say that, and we maybe even think that that's what we're doing, But if you examine the way we're actually conducting life, the evidence points in a different direction. We're pursuing something with our finances that has more to do with the lifestyle we want to live than it does with the kingdom of God. We're working, and we're charging up our credit cards, and we can't afford to give. Because we've got priorities. We've got to have that car, and we've got to have that house, and we've got to have those clothes, and we've got to live this lifestyle. Now, as you look at Matthew 6, and the main thrust of Matthew 6 is right here where we start getting down to brass tacks. Jesus hits two key issues in Matthew chapter 6 where we naturally Put our affections where we, what we naturally seek first. We naturally seek first, number one, our treasures, treasures on the earth, and number two, our security. Jesus addresses where are your, where are you, where are your treasures, and the way to find out where your treasures are is look what, look what occupies your heart. He says very clearly. He says this is crystal clear. We're going to read it in just a minute. Well, let's read it right now. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Do not. Now, I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? This is a word of God to me that I'm taking seriously, trying to constantly examine my own life and heart, whether this is true for me. He doesn't say, only lay up 30% of your treasures on earth. Or only you can lay up 50% of your treasures on earth. He says, don't lay up any. Lay them up in heaven. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at your heart. What occupies your mind and your attention and your uh, affections? 
What's occupying your thoughts again and again and again? It's, it's, is it really the priorities of the lifestyle we want to live here? Those are the things we all just have to carefully search our hearts on. And you can't, you can't decide it one day and be done with it. It's like you have to keep going back again and again and examining your heart again and again. And so must I. Am I laying up treasures on earth? That's, I, think, I think that's a harder question to answer than we may think. We just have to constantly check where we're really going, what we're really pursuing and dreaming about and wanting. Money can drive our priorities, and Jesus is crystal clear in this passage about that. He says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And every one of us keeps offering to be the trial exception case. I think I can do that, Lord. I'm doing a pretty good job, I think, right now. You cannot serve them both. So when money becomes our real master, we're not seeking first the kingdom of God. There may be some level at which we're attending to it, remembering it, including it alongside having it as one compartment of our life. But it isn't first if we're serving. The word, by the way, translated serve here, you cannot serve means be slave of. You You cannot be devoted as a slave. You cannot have two who have complete control over you. You just can't do it. It's not possible. Ralph Winter I don't know if if many of you have heard his name or not. He was a great, first he was a missionary himself, but then became a great missionary leader or what we call a missiologist. Great influence in the late 20th century, early 21st century on mission, missions. Everyone who is in the world of missions today has been impacted by this man, whether they've heard his name or not. He made this comment. Obedience to the Great Commission has been more consistently poisoned by affluence than by anything else. Very interesting comment. Very convicting. Very, when I read those words, it's like a knife straight into my heart. Oh, Lord God, we live in an affluent culture, and I don't know that we even can always tell what impact that's making on us. It's, it's like a fish in water. Does a fish know it's wet? You know? What our king says about security starts in verse 25. First, he's talking about our treasures. Second, he's talking about security. Verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't worry talking about now how worry can drive the priorities of our life. First, money or material things or just the stuff of life that we're treasuring here on earth, that can drive the agenda of our lives. But now he's talking about how worry can drive the agenda of our lives. And I have a suspicion that this is probably more real for a lot of us than even just blatant, you know, kind of living for the great good life, the affluent life. Is worry drives our agenda in subtle ways that we don't even see. 
I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, this is just the natural grasses that grow, you know, when, when, it, when it rains. Now, it's very different from here, but if you have any uh, experience of a place like Southern California, you know, in the springtime, the, the hills turn green and then they turn golden, right? <laughs> That's what they call it, the golden state. Uh, it basically dies and is brown. It's like that in Israel, too. In the spring rains, green grass springs up, but it's very short-lived because it's a desert and it's hot and dry. And he says if God handles the grass, and we, we look around and we see the beauty of that grass as it grows on the hills with the, the spring wildflowers, just, it's beautiful. If God takes care of those things, things that are so, in, in a way, incidental to us, how much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Worry drives our agenda. Therefore, do not be anxious, verse 31, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the world, I'm just translating there, for the world, or paraphrasing, the world seeks after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's the promise attached to this thing. And what you need for food, what you need for clothing, what you need for shelter, God will take care of. Is that really true? Really? Is that really, really, really true? I mean... Can you make decisions in your life based on that? Can you make financial decisions in your life based on the fact that you are before God humbly seeking first what he would have of you? And you may not always know how that's going to work out financially, but you are believing that God wants you to do what he is calling you to do, and you are going to do it trusting that he is going to provide for you. So what Jesus said is true. It's a hard thing to learn and to believe, isn't it? It really is. Believe me, even in so-called full-time ministry, this is a challenge for us. We're all human, and we all wrestle with the natural desire is to secure our lives by the things of our lives rather than to secure our lives by God himself. Know that our security is in God and not in the things around us. Here's the surprise of this passage. We get very quickly and automatically and easily how materialism can drive the agenda of our lives and, and set the priorities of our lives we understand how materialism can make us a slave of money. But we don't as immediately see how worry can make us a slave of money. But that's what Jesus is saying. Look back there again in the passage. What's the first word in verse 25? Therefore. And what comes right before that? What's the therefore referring to? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a slave of God and of money. Therefore, because you can't be a slave to both, 
Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Because when you become anxious about those things and you let worry start to set the priorities of your life, you're now becoming a slave of money, not a slave of God. Now, you'll see it most clearly and most pointedly when you are confronted with a stark choice. God is calling me to something, but I'm not sure how that's going to be paid for, and therefore I won't do it, and I will make a different choice because when I make a different choice, I can see how that's going to work out financially. I can't see how doing what God is asking of me is going to work out financially, and therefore, what do I do? If I choose not to do what God is directing me to do, I am not serving God. I'm not obeying God. That's how worry makes us a slave of money. Jesus gives us some reasons here in this passage why we don't need to worry. And I'm just going to touch them real quickly. Why we don't need to worry. We do it. It's a struggle. And it's hard to learn. But Jesus is trying to help us with that, and here he's telling us why we don't. Number one, it's, not, it's unnecessary. We've already read some of this. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't go to work every Monday morning like you do. They don't have a steady job. They're not consciously trying to provide for themselves and secure their lives. And yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's not necessary to worry because God has got it. And then we read about the the grass in verse 30. We read verses 31 to verse 33. God is promising to care for us if we seek first his kingdom. In other words, that means go ahead and take that risk to do the kingdom first thing. And then watch what God does. And the more you... Do that, and the more you watch what God does, the more your faith increases. God has been so faithful to me and Roberta and our family over the years that for me to not trust him when I'm faced with that kind of a reality would be to slap him in the face. Now, sometimes I get nervous thoughts and feelings. I confess that. I'm very quick to just get on my face and say, Lord, I am help my heart here because... That's not the way I want to be responding to you after the way you have cared for us so faithfully throughout our lives. Number one, it's unnecessary. Number two, it's useless. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life or translation might be another inch to your height? Uh, You know, did worry ever do any good for you? Gave you ulcers, but what else did it do for you? It's useless. It doesn't add anything to our lives. And number three, it's dangerous. It divides loyalties and can make us slaves of money. So we don't have to worry. There's no reason to worry. Jesus made it clear, but that is our challenge. Faith is our challenge. Trusting God is our challenge. And so Jesus is calling us to seek first his kingdom. He's calling us to surrender our lives completely to his reign. Everything about us. Across the board, from our affections, from our heart and its affections, to our wallet, to our pocketbook, to our finances. Now, the third dimension of seeking first the kingdom of God, or seeking first the reign of Jesus over the earth, 
is devoting ourselves to expand it. So we're doing our utmost to make sure we're in it. Once in it, we're surrendering ourselves to live it completely. But we're also devoting ourselves to expand the reign of Jesus upon the earth, longing to see more and more people coming under his reign, surrendering their lives to Jesus, longing for more places and things to be surrendered to Jesus. Take that one in for a minute. We naturally, in our individualistic culture and in our evangelicalism, very focused on the kind of the moral Christian life, the obedient Christian life, we don't often think about the bigger picture of the reign of Jesus Christ. Is it, when, when Jesus is reigning, will there be wars on the earth? No. I mean, when he's totally come and totally established his complete reign over all things, all places, all of humanity, will there be wars? There will not be wars. Will there be ethnic conflict? There will not be. Will there be hunger and poverty? There will not be. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth, here, the way it's done in heaven. If you haven't thought about how it's done in heaven, just take a moment. It'll come right to you. The angels don't argue with God. They say, yes, sir, with a bright smile. And they instantly obey the way your children do, right? <laughs> but people who have a kingdom heart look around the world and they see the brokenness and the destruction. And they see lives being ruined and destroyed and their hearts ache about that and they long for Jesus to clean that mess up. And they know that his people are called to be instruments of cleaning that mess up. And maybe God's calling some of you into those kinds of ministries or those kinds of focuses, places and things. I'll tell you one, God has not given me personally a call to this, at least not yet, but it's something that always makes me sick at heart, is the sexual trafficking of children. That is not the will of God being done on this earth. Now, in my flesh, that makes me want to be, get violent, you know. Just want to go rolling in there, coming in hot and heavy, and wreaking some havoc on some heads. But that's also what it means to seek first the kingdom of God, is to have a broken heart over the brokenness and to long to be an instrument in fixing it, if that is what God is giving you. He, he, may, he may have given you a, a heart, say, to care for children with special needs, that's his call of you, to serve his kingdom and to spread his reign on the earth. You may want to feed the hungry, house the homeless, all kinds of avenues that God can use people, use his people to do these kinds of things. It also means longing, ultimately, for Jesus to come back. You know, when you're praying, your kingdom come, that's ultimately what we're asking for is, oh, Jesus, come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the end of the book of Revelation. Or Isaiah 61, where the prophet just says, Oh God, oh Lord, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And when your heart's really aching over the condition of things, 
then you just wish God would come. You say, isn't it enough? How long, O Lord? That also is to seek first the kingdom of God. And then we keep on seeking all these things until at last we hear these glorious words. Revelation eleven fifteen, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet and loud, listen, loud voices in heaven. This is going to be a thundering chorus in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Don't you long for, those day, for that day? Amen. Well, here again is a place we're going to need to do a little more soul searching before we're done this morning. And I want, really, this is, is much of what I'm driving at this morning. I want to speak to us now together as a church family and what it means for us as a church family to be seeking first the kingdom of God, the the reign of Jesus over the earth as we've described it. If we, Crossway Fellowship, are seeking first the kingdom, we will want to see whatever it takes in our life, in our ministry together, to advance that, to increase that, to increase it in our city, to increase it in our state and country and, of course, around the world. And this will mean something vastly different than having quiet, peaceful lives with a comfortable church to belong to. Are you tracking with me now? Comfort in this age is not a kingdom value. It is in the age to come. There's a beautiful Old Testament picture, every one or every man under his vine and under his fig tree. It's a picture of peace and prosperity. It's a picture of the world the way it ought to be. And that's coming under the full reign of Jesus when he comes back. But in this age, that's not where we're at. yet we naturally seek our comfort. And a church that is seeking first the reign of Jesus and its increase in this world will prioritize what is best for the kingdom and not for itself. And this is where it gets hard. And I know this is hard. It's hard for me too. I'm not preaching at you. I'm just considering the word of God with you. Can churches become self-centered? Can churches become resistant to what Jesus wants? I'm inclined to think that's our central problem, frankly. Churches are very resistant to doing what it takes to be a a kingdom-expanding body of people. I want to relate or reflect on a passage, Acts chapter 13. So let's just, oh no, this is going to be on the screen. Acts chapter 13. Just reflect on this for a moment with you and, and let this be an example of what I'm trying to get at here. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, almost certainly an African, a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so a man who probably had some social standing, and Saul, who we know as Paul. <coughs> Excuse me. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Can you already see where we're going here? I've never heard of these other three guys outside of this text. But I've heard a lot about Paul and Barnabas. That leads me to believe they were probably the best leaders and teachers in this church. If you got a Paul in your congregation, are you going to be excited to lose him, to send him out? I suspect that our natural inclination is to keep for ourselves and not to send. That's important. Let me just note this so we don't lose track of it. This was not a human plan. This was not a strategy of church planters to sit down and strategize, how can we effectively plant churches? I've, I've actually heard guys in church planting circles, and it came up in Acts 29 a few times, where we should send out our best. That should be our strategy. You're missing something rather crucial in this passage. Who did the sending here? Who, who did the calling? Who made the decision? Whose plan was this? It wasn't any human group that sat down and strategized and said, you know what, this would be really cool. This was a move of the Holy Spirit. And we need to make sure we're clear about that. This is not a team of elders sitting around making decisions. This is God moving. But the point is, when he does move, are we going to be kingdom first people or are we going to be more like we described earlier, the worrier who doesn't want to make that decision because we fear the impact it might make on our ministry? Now, what am I getting at? I think you know, don't you? We say that we are a church planting church and we aspire to be a church planting church. Why is that, by the way? Why do we aspire to be a church planting church? And that means two things fundamentally. Number one, we're going to constantly be supporting new plants, and we are doing that. And that's part of what we're doing in the Indian ministry. That it's all at its root is about expanding churches, planting churches. But why would we be committed to church planting? Is it because it's kind of the latest cool ministry trend in America? Absolutely not. I spoke to this back in December, but I'm going to share them again with you, a couple of quotations here. One comes from a man named Steve Pike, National Director of Church Multiplication Network. Since 1990, American church leaders have been bombarded with an axiom that originated in a C. Peter Wagner book. He's another great missiologist. Church planting is the best methodology of evangelism under the sun. Most leaders are aware of this phrase, but our collective behavior indicates that we do not believe it is true. Here it is. Here's what I'm driving toward. The church that intentionally gives people time and finances to plant new churches is the rare exception, not the rule. And what I would really like to underscore in that list there is people. Tim Keller 
who most of you would be familiar with, the vigorous continual planting of new congregation is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. What number two means is church planting is good for the health of Crossway Fellowship, the spiritual well-being. It helps to stoke the fires and keep them burning hot. It helps us avoid becoming self-centered and complacent and comfortable in the inappropriate, non-kingdom sense. Tim Keller goes on to say, nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries. Watch this one, because this is probably what most of us would think is making the biggest impact numerically in reaching people for Christ, not growing megachurches. And Tim Keller is far from alone in saying this. The growth of megachurches, the megachurch phenomenon in America has not impacted the bottom line statistically in America. It has not. Now, I'm not saying that to criticize any church. I'm simply saying that to help us to be realistic about what we think. We think the big churches are doing it all and getting it done. We're fooling ourselves with what we think is really effective. It is God's using it, certainly. But what Tim Keller and the rest, C. Peter Wagner and everybody's telling us is, really, when you just keep planting churches, that's when you see the most people meeting Jesus. That's when you see the most people coming into the kingdom of God for the first time. Not just in America, but everywhere. And so that is why we want to be a church planting church. So here's where it comes home to us. What will it require of Crossway Fellowship to be a church planting church? What will it require of you and me? Are we ready and willing? Do we value the kingdom so highly that we are ready and willing to send out a group of our people into another part of this city to plant a new congregation? Because we believe that would be the most effective way to expand the reign of Jesus in this city. I know what your natural reaction is. It's the same as mine. It's going to be a numerical hit. It's going to be a financial hit. It's going to be a leadership hit. It's going to be a worship team hit. It can hit everything we're doing. Children's ministry hit. We're already struggling to get enough teachers for our children's ministry. Scott, shut up up there, will you? <laughs> yeah. But where it really hits, I think, is that a lot of us really just don't want to see Crossway disrupted in any way. We want to keep it the way it is. It's good. It's comfortable. It's working for us now. It's getting to a place where we can kind of settle and rest a little bit and not feel like every week are we going to survive. Now, if we're going to plant a church, now, I, I meant to say this earlier, I'm not making any announcements, and I don't want anything to be interpreted as an, an announcement, okay? This is a preparation, not an announcement. This is getting our hearts the place where they need to be so that when God does bring this to, to pass, we're ready, and our hearts are right. I think even when it comes, it's probably going to be a struggle. 
But we need our hearts to be prepared to say yes. The key issue, as we saw in Acts chapter 13, is when the Spirit of God moves, and it is clearly time, the time cannot be determined by how full this room is, or how solid our budget is, or how well our programs are working. If we let that be the measure, you know what happens? You never plant a church, ever. Because you never get to the point where you feel like it's solid enough to give up a little bit. It's always going to be a sacrifice. It's always going to cost something. It's always going to disrupt our comfort zone to really do this and really get after this. Churches with fewer people sitting in this room right now have planted churches. And God's continued to use them and continued to use their plants. It's going to take the conviction to believe this is real, this is true, this is how to go about it. And that God wants us to be a part of that. And because we are seeking the reign of Jesus first, including being devoted to expanding it, we want so much to be a part of what is most effective to bringing more people under the reign of Jesus, knowing him as their Lord and Savior. That we're willing and ready to say, okay, elders, what's taking you so long? Let's get on with it. Let's go. When the Spirit calls, the Spirit leads, we go. And when we start to worry, we say what? Seek first His kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of. So let's just conclude this morning. Seeking first Jesus' reign over the earth. Are you in it? That's the first question. Are you completely surrendered to it? And then are you devoted to expanding it? Are we then, as a family of believers, devoted to expanding it? I'm just asking that God would give us this heart, teach us this heart, increase this heart in us, so that these fires would burn bright. So we stir and we poke and we throw some more wood on the fire this morning. And God would not let our love grow cold, not let the fire die. He'd give us a passion, a burning passion, 